Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Maurice Selby. And I'm Giorgio Malouf. And I'm Anastasia. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have with us Dr. Alexa Miesis Malchuk. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine. And Dr. Miesis Molchek is also a champion of health equity and was named as one of the 2019 40 Under 40 Leaders in Health by the National Minority Quality Forum. She's a recipient of the E. Harvey Estes Award for Leadership and Advocacy from the Duke Health Family Medicine. And Dr. Miesi Smolchuk is a medical content expert for both written and broadcast media outlets such as ABC, CBS, Univision, and Huffington Post. Dr. Miesi Smolchuk is a family physician and is currently practicing in Durham, North Carolina. She is a graduate of Duke University Family Medicine Residency Program, and she received both her MD and her Master's of Public Health degrees from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And lastly, I mean, this one is the biggest one, man. She's a, a, an alum of the City College of New York. And so with that said, we welcome Dr. Miesis Molchuk. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Yeah, of course, man. So we, we've, I mean, this is a, a hugely important topic um, tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be talking about how to find a primary care physician, uh, primary care physician or practitioner and essentially, we all want to live happy and healthy lives. We see people striving to meet their health goals right in the supermarket aisles. 
um, at the gym, they're at the park getting their steps in or running or biking. They're out there with family and friends and acquaintances making meaningful connections, which we know is vital to our mental health and well-being. And then you have people out there with personal trainers. I see people consulting nutritionists and life coaches to help uh, with all of those goals. But when it comes to overall an overall health advocate that can make sure that we're staying healthy, um, I really can't say that we all have it together in that sense, especially even myself um, right now shopping for a, a good, solid primary care um, physician. And I remember a conversation that I had with another doc, a good friend of mine, and I was talking to him about a patient I had. And I was like, man, this patient, he doesn't he's not seeing anyone for his primary care. And my colleague was like, yo, do you have one? And I sat there <laughs> looking like, oh, um, so yeah, man, this is real. This is real stuff. Uh, and according to a study out there um, performed by the Stanford University School of Medicine, and Harvard Medical School from the period 2005 to 2015, for every 10 additional primary care physicians per 100,000 people, there's an associated 51.5 day increase in life expectancy, whereas there's only a 19.2 increase in life expectancy for every uh, 10 additional specialists, specialty physicians um, out there. And essentially their conclusion was that the greater the primary care physician supply, it was associated with an improved population mortality suggesting that observed decreases in primary care supply may have important consequences for population health. And we've actually seen an increase in the number of primary care physicians. However, we are seeing large losses of these providers from rural areas in conjunction with just the growth of the U.S. population. And that's led to this sort of relative uh, decreased density of primary care physicians per 100,000 people from 466 to 41.1 in that same decade, that same 10 year period. Um, and so that's why we brought the expert in <laughs> so that we could talk about this problem and really start to get people the information they need and what to look for and what to think about when they select a primary doc. So we, quick question, um, Dr. Miesis Molchek, as far as primary care, why is it so essential to have a primary care physician? I mean, we have urgent cares everywhere. We have ERs where people can receive care um, whenever they need it 24-7. I mean, what, where does a primary care provider fit in? Why is it so crucial to our health and longevity? Yeah, you know, I, I was really moved by the, uh, the, the data and the findings that you just mentioned from the Stanford and Harvard studies, because basically what that's saying is that primary care saves lives, you know, and of course I'm biased as a primary care physician. I know that to be true. I see it every day, um, but it's nice to have that data to back it up. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about primary care, we're not talking about any one specific medical specialty. Instead, what we're talking about is someone who provides a very specific sort of health care, for their patients. And so, you know, often you'll hear this analogy that primary care physicians are sort of like the quarterback on a football team and they're overseeing all the moving parts. I would even go a step further and say primary care physicians are like the coach, really overseeing every aspect and making sure that everybody works as a team. This is such a timely analogy because yep. the NFL kicks off in like an <laughs> I hour. Help myself. <laughs> Yo, that was dope. You see that, ladies and gentlemen, we got... You got the truth right here. Yes. 
So, yeah, so can you so, expand on that? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, primary care physicians, I mean, think, you know, when I, when I think about what I provide to my patients, I'm providing them with a long-term lifelong relationship. I want them to view me and my team as their home base. So what that means is that we don't just provide preventative medicine and healthcare maintenance things such as flu shots and pap smears and checkups um, for kids, but we are also able to treat a treat acute conditions. So for example, on Thanksgiving, when you're cutting that turkey, you slice your finger open and, and, and you know, everything's closed. If you're, if you're able to access your primary care physician, you know, I'd be more than happy to stitch that finger up for you. You know, we also manage chronic diseases. And so what that means is we don't have limitations based on an organ system or an age group, right? I treat, you know, rheumatological diseases like lupus, but also really common diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure. So a primary care physician in my mind is essential um, because we provide so many services that are integral to overall total wellness. Mm -hmm. And you only need one primary care physician to do that for you. So when we're also talking about cost effectiveness and high value care and just convenience for our patients, I hate to say it this way, but we're kind of like a one-stop shop. <laughs> That's what's up. Yes. And especially in, uh, as a family medicine practitioner, I mean, you have such a broad scope of practice. Um, and one thing that I, I just really want to hone in for on is, is that uh, longevity aspect. Um, correct. So as far as, I guess, developing a relationship with your patients, I guess that's probably the defining characteristic, would you say? Yeah. So, you know, the specialties that often fall under the umbrella of primary care, number one, of course, is family medicine. So I'm a family medicine physician. And so what that means is that I can provide prenatal care to pregnant women, deliver that baby, and then take care of mom and baby for the rest of their lives. Wow. Um, and I think for family medicine in particular, as the name of the specialty implies, a huge advantage is that we do take care of entire families and we think about them within the context of their communities. So family medicine is one of the few specialties that um, sort of expressly in its mission is to think about those social determinants of health, those mm. things that happen outside of the clinic and outside of the hospital that influence someone's wellness. And we know that health is more than, you know, just taking your medicines and, uh, and, and visiting your doctor. There's a lot more to it. Got it. Um, such as okay, so in terms of the social determinants of health, you are talking about um, where a person works, the environment they live in, um, how often they sit and eat Doritos watching the NFL, um, <laughs> which hopefully, ladies and gentlemen, is just for that Sunday um, or that one time a week. Um, so these 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 uh, non physical aspects of life, I guess that that affect health and well being. Yeah. So we're really talking about things outside of someone's genetics and medicine and sort of their contact with the healthcare system. So a lot of times these are things that we don't have control over, right? Mm -hmm. So whether or not someone has graduated from college or had contact with the criminal justice system or has access mm -hmm. to reliable transportation, we know that all of these things, you know, health literacy, all of these things impact health. And so as a family physician, I am formally trained to address those issues. So beyond just 
here's your medication. This is, you know, this is the condition or the disease that you have. All right. And can we contrast that with the care that is delivered by other physicians and healthcare practitioners um, in other settings? So for instance, urgent care clinics um, or people that are going for work letters and and health screenings um, in either these clinics or they're showing up in other um, arenas to get these, I guess, kind of health maintenance uh, issues dealt with or even emergency departments. How does that differ from what we see um, as far as the care that's delivered in primary care? Yeah. So, I mean, urgent care certainly has its place in our healthcare system, right? But the the downside to urgent care is that it's episodic and there's no continuity, right? So people are often waiting to the last minute when maybe they run out of their medications or they are going for that finger that they sliced open and they're completely ignoring their diabetes that maybe they've had for years and is uncontrolled. And when they enter that setting, they're only having one item or one problem addressed mm-hmm. and the parts of their life that make them a whole person are often not at the forefront of the care that's provided. Gotcha. And one thing I can attest to that, ladies and gentlemen, I am an emergency physician. And um, while we would love to function as uh, primary care practitioners, it is just not the environment for that. Um, And, you know, we do have patients that sort of show up um, for various reasons continuously to the emergency department. And essentially we begin to see these people like, hey, I'm like your primary doctor, but it's inefficient and it's fragmented care um, that, you know, in that gap where I don't see that individual, um, where I don't know what's going on as far as those social determinants of health, whether they're employed, right? Um, They come in for different issues. And and like Dr. Miesi's Malchuk said, I mean, we definitely try to take into account those other factors. um, But in terms of efficiency and really being able to deliver like holistic care and, and really take care of the entire person is very, very difficult. Not that we don't try um, in the ER or in those urgent care uh, settings or even in the clinic setting, but it's just very, very difficult um, because, as and just like you said, um, Dr. Miesi's Malchuk, um, we don't know, right? Sometimes or we don't know about the diabetes if we're not told uh, sometimes. We don't know about um, the employment history or the history of incarceration. Those things don't always come to the forefront of those visits, um, but they can be very important in the care that we deliver. And finally, once we discharge the person, then we have no clue, right, of, of what's going on. Um, I mean, we do have some follow-up programs that we try to implement to touch base with, with, with patients that we're worried about, but um, the feasibility of following up with everyone like that is just not there. Hence, we all need a primary care doctor. I don't care what you say or what your argument is against it, but that's, and the data proves it. You know, and honestly, as a primary care physician, I'm so thankful for emergency medicine physicians, right? Because, you know, you guys are seeing things that primary care physicians are not able to treat, like the car accidents and the gunshot wounds, of course. But honestly, you're also seeing those patients who don't have a primary care physician. And so now you're seeing them with complications from long-term uncontrolled diabetes or high blood pressure, and you are saving their lives in that moment, and then hopefully linking them to a primary. That's, but that's, that's well, that is the thing. Control. I would say, and I don't have the hard numbers in front of me, ladies and gentlemen, but I would say, um, 
eight to nine out of 10 patients that come in uh, um, with a complication from a chronic illness like diabetes, like hypertension, heart disease, um, I would say eight to nine out of 10 times, these are problems that could have been prevented um, had they had access to a, a good primary care provider and had been working in tandem with that individual uh, to nip these things in the bud. I mean, there's so many times where these things could have been, you know, absolutely avoided. Um, and I mean, I love taking care of patients. I love interacting with people. But if we can avoid those complications um, beforehand, I think everybody, you know, we would we would all do better, including our healthcare system as a whole. And so that's why it's just so crucial. It's so crucial. Um, with that said, so I mean, I think the the consensus among the general public is that this is a priority. I think people can definitely see for themselves the value in having a competent and compassionate uh, physician, somebody they relate to that's taking care of them, um, right, and that they get to know very well for a long period of time as they go on in their lives. I think everyone can really see the value in that, um, but there are obviously barriers to individuals acquiring a, a healthcare uh, practitioner, a primary healthcare practitioner. So what are those barriers um, that we see in preventing people from getting this type of care? You know, it's interesting, interesting that you, you say that everyone sees the value of it, because I agree. I think when we're having an intellectual conversation about the value of primary care, folks could agree that this is, like I said, primary care saves lives. But I can't tell you how many people, especially um, young people, the millennial generation to which I belong, um, actually don't see the value in having a primary care doctor. Mm. Young and healthy, they believe that they do not need that long-term relationship. And so what I always try to emphasize is that wellness and preventive medicine requires preparation, if you will. And so even if you only see your physician once a year and you're healthy at that visit with no medical complaints, you get to sit and have a conversation and allow your physician to get to know you, learn about your life, and plan for the future. So that goes not just for things like family planning, but sort of what to anticipate or what to expect as you age. What sort of cancer screening services might you need? You know, so if the only time you're going to see your doctor is when you're sick or when you have an issue... Um, you're really closing the door to this whole other world, this whole other type of relationship that can exist with your physician. So attitudes about primary care, I think, really do um, differ for some people. But I will also say that, you know, to get back to your point about the barriers, there are so many barriers. And that's the sad reality of our healthcare system in the United States, right? So, you know, and and a lot of these things are what I'm about to say have a lot of reasons why they exist. But earlier in the show, you mentioned that there aren't a lot of primary care physicians in rural settings. So just geography, just where you live, you know, something that many times you don't get a chance to choose, you might not have access to a primary care physician, mm. right? And then we also have to think about things like health insurance. So some people have no health insurance whatsoever. Whatsoever, Other people have health insurance, but it's not high quality health insurance. And we call those people underinsured. So technically they can go see a physician, but the out-of-pocket expense that it would cost them would be prohibitive. And so patients 
don't choose to go see their physician because understandably they're saving money. They need to put that money somewhere else. So there are many limitations and bar- not limitations, but barriers to accessing primary care. Do you know how we would be able to remove some of those barriers or do you have any ideas? I know that a lot of it is systemic, but uh, is there something that we could start to work on as a community? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think if I had the answer, I don't know, I'd win a Nobel Peace Prize or something, some sort of story. <laughs> because there are people you who be our surgeon higher, you know, careers and lives to, to answering that question. And the truth is, it's a complicated answer, right? Because what exists right now is we have private health insurance, which for the most part is often paid for by employers. Then we have public health insurance. So that's like Medicare for the elderly, but also Medicaid, which is for um, people who come from a lower socioeconomic background um, and or they might be disabled. And even then, who qualifies for Medicaid changes depending on what state you're in, right? And then we have the uninsured And really what's available to uninsured patients is the emergency department, (laughs) which I'm sure, uh, you know, Dr. Selby, you're fully, fully acquainted with. Um, But then there are also other types of healthcare facilities. So um, specifically federally qualified health centers. These are healthcare centers that provide free medical care, low cost or no cost prescriptions and um, lab and imaging services, and they're funded um, with government funds. So how do we make it more equitable so that everybody has access? Some folks would say, well, beef up those services that the government is providing people. So whether that's the federally qualified health centers, whether that's expanding Medicaid so that more people are eligible in all states. Some other people talk about taking the Medicare model, which right now is reserved for senior citizens, and expanding that to all U.S. citizens. But yet again, even that leaves out some folks because we still have many undocumented immigrants in this country who are not able to access health care through any sort of um, insurance avenue or process, if you will. So it's a very complicated answer. And in part, that's because our healthcare system is honestly unnecessarily complicated. We got a long way to go when it comes to mm. providing equitable health care for all in this country. True story. Absolutely. And, and Dr. Mysisa Malchuk, do you find that Medicaid and Medicare are what you would consider uh, underinsured, like where they have insurance, but realistically, they're not going, they're not getting the same level of care and attention that someone who has a private uh, health insurance would be able to, to uh, receive from different facilities? Yeah. So again, like, I wish I had a simple answer, but even when we talk about Medicare, which is for the elderly, there's a difference in the medical coverage, meaning uh, having a person go see a physician, and that coverage can be different from the prescription coverage and how much it costs them to pay for their medications, 
And that can be different from nursing home and home health services. So it's like very convoluted and complicated. But I would say for the most part, when you're talking about Medicare and Medicaid, assuming that a person has that sort of public insurance, to me, one of the barriers I see is whether or not um, there are physicians in your geographic region who are accepting those insurance policies. Mm. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's true what... for private insurance as well. Yeah. Not all physicians accept all types of insurance. Some don't accept insurance at all. Yes. Which and and unfortunately, you know, there are some of these issues that we won't be able to fix um individually, obviously, but it's gonna be it's gonna take a collective. Um, which uh, we've talked about that in the past, ladies and gentlemen, and we will always say it again in that we have to put our votes where our, where our mouths are and in terms of what we need in our communities, um, as that, that's the only way that we're going to address um, these issues in our, our healthcare system as a whole. Uh, but in terms of really uh, addressing that at the individual level, that's what it really comes down to is just having a knowledge, as you said, of your geographic area, um, knowing your, if so, if you are insured, knowing your policy, um, what the limitations of those policies are, right? Whether this is a managed care policy, um, meaning uh, something like an HMO or a health maintenance organization or a, a PPO, these have limitations in not just the services that you can uh, receive, but also in the physicians that you can see, right? Uh, whether they're in network or out of network. Um, which could lead you to pay a little bit more if you do choose a, a provider that is not within that network for that insurance. Um, and as Dr. Miesi's Malchuk said, unnecessarily complicated, mm -hmm. but this is how, you know, the system that we're operating in and we just have to have um, at some level, and I'm talking about everybody out there, not just providers, but everybody have some working knowledge of how our system works in order to really uh, get the care that you need. And if you're underinsured, being aware of those federally funded institutions that will provide care to you, um, regardless of your ability to pay. And I'll just use um, as an example, the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. Um, you know, we, we have uh, pretty much the largest. I'm saying we as if I'm still in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I love my city, man. That's my home. Um, but yeah, uh, New York City HHC. Right. That is the mission of that entity is to provide care to all that need it, regardless of their ability to pay. And so whether you are underinsured or even uninsured, there are programs to meet you where you are as far as your earnings um, so that you can receive that care. I mean, that's not something that is, you know, everywhere throughout the United States, but there are programs that um, with a little bit of detective work, you can uncover that and, and get those services. And finally, right, as we said, get access to that primary care that is so valuable to live in a happy, healthy life. You know, I, I just want to, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to acknowledge though, like at, I'm a physician. I'm the first mm -hmm. doctor in my family. I feel like I'm still learning about the healthcare system. Yes. There are questions that my patients ask me about their insurance that I swear I cannot answer. And I have to tell them, you have to call your insurance company and ask. So as someone who lives and breathes this every day, I want to acknowledge how hard this is for people yes. who do not. And I don't care if you're the most educated person in the world. If you don't work in healthcare, it's going to be that much harder for you. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's it's super challenging. And just the complexity of our healthcare system in and of itself is a barrier 
to getting care. <laughs> and one last thing to add to that, right? This is, uh, I guess, goes back to um, our initial argument in that we all need primary uh, care providers because that is going to be one of the functions of your providers to help you navigate this uh, immensely complex system that we have, whether it is that practitioner themselves that are going to take you through it, or if they have social workers that they're working with to make sure that you get the the care that you need. That is why we all must invest this time to really just find um, a really solid medical practitioner uh, that can provide that primary care that we all need. Um, And so uh, moving into now, this is the juicy part, ladies and gentlemen, because we're going to give you what you need to make this decision, right? Who's going to take care of you and your family? Um, So Dr. Miesi's uh, Malchuk, could you take us through just the different types of primary care providers, right? Family medicine, maybe versus internal medicine versus pediatrics and even some advanced practice providers like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Is there a difference between these these different professionals um, and really what should a person look for in selecting a provider? Yeah, absolutely. So, You know, for me as a family medicine physician, I take a lot of pride in being able to take care of, you know, men and women of all ages, regardless of what their health conditions are. Um, So, you know, my specialty is family medicine. So thinking about those structural things that influence health as well as the patient in front of me. And so in making distinctions between family medicine and some of the other medical specialties, I think that the training is just a little bit different. Um, And quite frankly, some of the things that those physicians are able to do are very different. So as an example, Mm -hmm. in pediatrics, when you are 18, maybe 21 years old, you will phase out of your pediatrician's office. They are unable to provide care to adults. And that is simply the nature of their training. They specialize in the care of children and adolescents. Um, But if you have a general pediatrician, meaning a pediatrician who did not subspecialize, then that pediatrician could provide primary care to you while you're young. The same is true for um, an OBGYN or an obstetrician and gynecologist. So often, you know, when we think about OBGYN, we think about how they deliver babies, um, but they also do certain types of surgery. But again, when when someone's practicing general gynecology, um, that gynecologist can be a primary care physician. But again, mm-hmm. they can't take care of men and they do have some limitations in some of the things that they might be able to provider that they're comfortable providing. Interesting. In addition to, so you have family medicine, you have pediatrics, you have OBGYN, and then the fourth specialty that um, can fall under the umbrella of primary care is internal medicine. And, you know, there are some internal medicine programs that train their physicians to really practice medicine in the clinic, like general internal medicine. But for the most part, internal medicine is a hospital-based specialty. So a vast majority of residency training in internal medicine takes place in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, what that means is that often there's a much higher level acuity of care. So, you know, patients who are in the intensive care unit, as an example, Um, The other thing is internal medicine physicians do often choose to sub-specialize in organ systems. And so once they do that, they're no longer providing primary care services. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, and you'll meet the, the, the occasional few that do. I remember some uh, pul pulmonary critical care folks that, you know, still had their sort of a cohort of primary care patients that they saw. Um, but I mean, unfortunately, you know, things are moving away from that um, with a, a majority of physicians, um, especially in internal medicine, sort of uh, going into this more um, specialty and subspecialty training. So, um, but I have to throw, Anastasia, I got to throw you on the spot. <laughs> um, just because I think one thing too that we need to focus on is really how do we, what are we looking for in our physicians? That's that's something that we have to ask ourselves. So Anastasia, though, I'm going to, I'm going to jump to you and just ask you, what are you looking for in a primary doctor? I think you said you're looking too, right? Yes, I am. I am looking okay. for a primary care physician. Um, me and a lot of my friends actually. So um, we're at that point of our lives where we got kind of kicked out of our parents' insurance. So we had to find our own. Um, and so we have to go through the search of trying to find the primary care physician that accepts our insurance or they um, have a pay scale, you know, a sliding scale for pay. And so all of my friends are asking me like, hey, do you know any primary physicians that I can go to? Or do you have anyone you can recommend? And I don't because I don't, there's so many people, well, I live in New York City, so there are a lot of primary care physicians here because I live in the city. Um, but finding one that's right for me that takes my insurance is becoming uh, a huge research project. So yeah, I'm looking for a physician that will actually listen to me and take my lifestyle into consideration because I've had doctors where they would just tell me what to do without telling, without really like listening to why I can't actually do what they're asking me to do at that moment. Um, I'm also looking for someone that believes in preventative medicine. Like they'll look at my um, blood test results. They'll look at my results and be like, we should probably watch out for this or look out for that. Not let it get to the point where the, it shows a little H next to that category on my blood test results. And then they're like, oh, now we have to treat it. Um, also, I'm looking for someone mm -hmm. that actually believes in like birth control and stuff, because I've had a problem with that as well um, as a woman. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And someone that is, I want to say, open minded to very different kinds of people that can come into your office, because if they can't, I've had experiences with uh, physicians I've seen a lot of physicians because I am uh, the oldest child of an immigrant family that speaks that speaks the best English. So I have to go with everyone and talk to everyone and translate. Um, I've met physicians that don't really know how to handle patients that don't fit like their normal type of patient. And that becomes also a problem. Um, but the one thing that and another thing that I'm looking for finally is someone that can recommend me good specialists. Because usually when I was younger and under my parents' insurance, we had a, we have a, we had a very good primary care doctor um, and they knew like the best physicians to go to for specialties that I knew I was going to be taken care of. So that's also something that I look for for primary care because I there's so many physicians that are specialists in New York City that I don't know who to pick because I've never been to their office before. And I don't want to go into them and start being their patient and then realize they're not giving me the care that I need or they can't really, they're not really having those qualities that I'm looking for in a physician. Mm. You know, it's interesting too, what you said. And, and uh, one, thank you for sharing that with us, um, Anastasia. Uh, but also, 
you know, that's that's what you're looking for. And it's awesome that you have this very sort of detailed um, idea as to what you want in a primary care uh, physician or a primary care practitioner. Um, and it's awesome. And the thing is, one thing, ladies and gentlemen, I think we all should take away is that, right, this is an individual thing. And so that's what Anastasia wants. Now you have to ask yourself, what do you want? Some people do want that physician that's going to tell them, this is what you need to do, right? I'm going to tell you what to do and how to do it. Um, some people, that is how they will get um, ideal care or at least ideal outcomes. Um, and then you have individuals like Anastasia that's like, look, we are going to, you're going to listen to me, one. <laughs> that's the brain priority, right? Listen to me. And then we can talk about uh, what needs to happen. And that is perfectly valid. That is um, something that, I, I mean, that's how I want it too, as a patient, um, how I want to be treated. Listen to what I have to say. And then you tell me, you know, what you found in your evaluation and then we can work together to make decisions together. Um, uh, but I think either way is valid. And it's really about the individual. What do you want, um, in your provider, right? Um, do you need somebody, right? If there is a language barrier, um, maybe they're a, an excellent physician or an excellent practitioner, but do they have translation services available in their office? Then, hey, maybe it's still game. Um, and, and like you said, able to take into account those um, cultural barriers or cultural differences and still provide excellent care. Um, that's somebody that that you might want to gravitate um, to. And so, it, you know, it's it's really about yourself, ladies and gentlemen. That's going to be the starting point in this search for the ideal primary provider for you is what do you want out of that provider? What do you, what do you need from that individual? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something that I just came up with on the fly. Like you, mm -hmm. I had to put a lot of thought into it, you know, using my past experience with the physicians I was exposed to what I liked in each one and what I didn't like in each one, because as mentioned, like this is a lifelong commitment. This is like, this is it. This is, this can last more than your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and it, as important as a marriage, I'm glad that's a perfect analogy. Like this is as important as selecting your, your soulmate. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what though? I want to jump in there because mm -hmm. the analogy I was going to make is, and this is not just true for primary care. This is true for you as a patient and any physician. This is like dating. So this is not a marriage. This is not a lifelong commitment. Oh, you may no. love your doctor at first and something might happen that changes that relationship for whatever reason. And that is okay. You have a right to find a different ph physician, to seek a second or a third or a fourth medical opinion, if that's what you so desire. And so what I would say is, you know, to speak, to kind of address what both, what both of you were saying, Anastasia and Dr. Selby, is that everybody's going to want something different. And physicians, you know, we're human beings, right? So I'm not going to be the right doctor for everyone. And that is a-okay. I don't want to try to be the right doctor for everyone because at the end of the day, I am myself and I bring my identity to how I care for my patients. Some people will love that. Some people it's not going to work for and that's okay. So what I encourage people to do is number one, you know, try to find somebody who does accept your insurance or who would otherwise be affordable for you because first thing we would want to try to do is eliminate whatever financial barriers might exist or might prevent you from accessing your provider. 
and not make things more stressful by having to afford these services because that. (laughs) Exactly. Then you go for your first visit. It should be an introduction visit. You know, I always tell people don't show up to your primary care doctor with 50 problems and expect them to all get addressed. I think if you want to get off on the right foot, you do your best to try to establish care when you are not sick so that you can really get a chance to know one another. And if it doesn't work, then you find somebody else. It might take one visit, two visits, three visits to figure that out, but that's okay. And so how does someone go about finding a a doctor that is in network? I've heard of people using apps like ZocDoc um, to do this and being able to see ratings of doctors so that people are like shopping for doctors in the same way that you would shop for a place to get delivery food from on, let's say, Yelp or something like that. So I'm just wondering, is there something that you would recommend uh, for people to use a tool that's available? Yeah. So first, if you have insurance, most health insurance companies will on their website have a list of in-network providers and allow you to filter based on you know, maybe the gender of the provider or the geographic location. So First, for the most accurate information, I say check with your insurance company. Then, yeah, something like ZocDoc is great. I've used that for myself as a patient. But honestly, Google is your best friend. So if you Google me, you'll see that you know the health system that I work for has a profile about me. It talks about my interests, the sort of clinical things I like to do, and how I do those things, what my approach to patient care is. It has my educational background on there. You could see a photo. Um So most clinical practices, whether you work at a huge hospital-based practice like I do, or you are, you know, a a privately practicing physician, you know, one in a hundred square miles in a rural area, in this day and age, the internet is usually very helpful in, in helping you find some information. But you really don't know. Somebody could look really good on paper. And, you know, you, you just don't click. You don't feel that magic. You don't have that spark. I'm telling you, it's like dating. <laughs> Uh, no, it happened to me. Like this person was perfect on paper, went to meet them, you know, for a well visit. And I was like, oh, no, did not go back. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, no, um, it, it, you're right. It is more like dating. Um, It's just that in my experience, it's hard to change doctors sometimes, like signing all those release forms, making sure that the office is faxed everything so you don't start from square one with a new yep. doctor. Um, that it, it, I think that that for me personally is like some, like a smaller ish barrier because it's like going through all the work. If you already live a very busy life and now suddenly you have to go through the whole research pro like project of finding another doctor, like that is also something that can be very intimidating too, because you went through it once and you realize that that person wasn't the best pick and going through it again could also just be a reason why like some people might not decide to change that easily. Yeah. And even now, technology is helping to bridge that gap a little bit. So this isn't true for all physicians, but depending on the size of your practice and and what sort of physician practice it is, there's crosstalk between these electronic medical records now. So sometimes you don't even have to sign a formal release as a patient. Um, There's just a button we click and it pulls in information from the other place where you got care, the other health system, if you will. Yeah. Oh, I hope that becomes a <laughs> something that is more massively used then because it would definitely save um, all of us a lot of time if the cro- if the talking could be uh, <laughs> easily done. Also because of specialists, right? Because the work that you, whatever attests that the specialists order, you have to send it back to your primary care so that everyone's on the same page. 
Yes. So that's that's also something that I hope that will be easier to do. <laughs> well, one thing too, and I'm glad that you guys brought this up because um, I, I think this also goes back to right how you're going to select this provider and taking into account the capabilities of the provider as far as um, helping you keep all of this stuff in order. Um, because again, that is going to be one of the responsibilities of um, that provider. Um, ideally, one of the responsibilities, right, is really just helping you keep all of this stuff in order as far as your your health and well-being, your health maintenance. Um, and so are do they have an electronic medical record or a system to allow you to do that? Do they have access to a patient portal, right, where you can view your laboratory results, where you can look at your imaging uh, studies or x-rays and stuff? Um, and also how easily can they facilitate transfer to other physicians? And going back to what Anastasia said about what she looks for um, in a provider, um, a, a provider with a network. So that is in, let's say, a health system like Dr. Miesi's Malchuk or even myself, um, right? We work for big health systems that uh, referrals can be made easier. We might even have relationships within that system where we say, hey, I know of a good orthopedist that I can send you to for this uh, issue that you're having. You have a knee pain. I know a good uh, sports medicine doc um, here. I'm going to send you to that person. Uh, right. Or even just a, a, a private practitioner that has these uh, relationships in the community uh, with other specialists um, that that's crucial. And that's something that I think is definitely you can ask about. You can even research um, as far as making sure that the PCP, the primary care practitioner that you're going to see, has these relationships or has this network and infrastructure um, in place. And I mean, I know it's just adding more to what we're looking for, but again, that is something that I would definitely take into account when looking for a provider that's going to give you the the ideal care. Because anybody that can make all of this stuff easy, uh, easier, and especially, I mean, we see this all the time in the ER: people coming in with incomplete records or they don't remember, you know, the medicine that they were on or, or a particular allergy, what reaction they had to a particular medication. Um, it's frustrating for the patient, of course, but also in us in providing care. And the, what I've seen is that the real good primary care docs, right, um, they will have a way for their patients to access that information at will and to be able to be used, um, whether it's, as I said, through a patient portal or they've te- they taught their patients how to tabulate this stuff and put it on um, sheets of paper on their, their, their phone or tablet, like they found ways and work together to make sure that this information is easy, easily accessible and useful for any aspect of care that they're going to receive. And it's just definitely something to look for. And there are providers out there, right? Especially us millennials. I'll give us that credit that we are, we are good at that at linking people in when it comes to using this type of technology. And I think that's a good segue. Actually, we kind of brought this up, uh, during our, um, I don't want to say interruption. So Imani burst break. in here with a no break. Yeah, break. <laughs> she had a meltdown and we had to stop recording for a second. But uh, during that little break, we were talking about um, actually telemedicine, which is so exciting. Um, so Dr. Miesi's Mulchuk, that that's something that you're actually doing, right? Especially in this COVID era. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the progress that we have made in telemedicine in the last, you know, six months, eight months, nine months is crazy. I'm talking things that, you know, previously were 
like political barriers to providing telemedicine to people in other states with everything that was going on with is still going on with the pandemic. A lot of those barriers were eliminated in an effort to really provide care to all. So when COVID first hit, you know, initially we were trying to think of how can we best keep our patients safe. And so for a very short while, a hundred percent of my care was um, virtual. So that was either video visits or phone visits for people who don't have smartphones. Um, And that was really while our clinic and our health system at large figured out how to keep patients safe and, and, and have them come in in person. And so now I'm working more in a hybrid model where um, I'm seeing my patients again in clinic, but for folks who don't feel comfortable, first I have a conversation with them because I do everything I can to try to make them feel comfortable and let them know that I will not put them at any undue risk. If I think that they shouldn't come in, I will let them know. Um, But if someone just doesn't want to come in um, or quite frankly, you know, this virtual medicine stuff is really convenient. Some people just prefer to squeeze in a phone call or a video visit, you know, on their lunch break as an example. So I'm doing both right now. Is the quality of the care and and the quality of the the conversation the intimacy there. Is it the same in a virtual visit compared to an in-person visit? Or is it only the same if you already have that chemistry from meeting in person prior to? Yeah. You know, I think each has its pros and its cons. So before COVID, if you asked me, do I prefer in-person care or virtual care? I would have told you in-person care. I'm a people person. I like to be able to relate to my patients. Body language is so important when it comes to communication and really being able to see someone's facial expressions. Um, now, I mean, the irony is with COVID, I'm wearing a mask. My patient's wearing a mask. I have goggles on. And it, in so many ways, it feels like there's this extra barrier between us. When I do my virtual care, especially the video visits, we don't have masks on. And, you know, there's a lot more animation that you can see in one another. Um But to answer your question about sort of the limitations, you know, I think that what it really depends on is why you're seeking care. So I'll give you, you know, a few examples of different scenarios. So whether or not it's a new patient or a patient I've seen before, telemedicine or virtual medicine lends lends itself very well to mental health conditions, Mm. right? When we're talking about depression and anxiety or other psychiatric conditions, all of which have increased in the setting of COVID-19 and the pandemic and it being stressful, that is something that is very easily done via virtual medicine. You know, part of what we call the psychiatric exam, the part of the exam that focuses on um, psychiatry, a lot of that is based off of questionnaires and history, meaning what I ask my patient. So, you know, telemedicine doesn't really create any barriers. In fact, it provides this extra level of convenience for mental health treatment. I would contrast that with someone who is having excruciating abdominal pain, right? If someone's having abdominal pain, I don't care how many questions I ask them. And believe me, the history is very, very important. At the end of the day, I still want to have an opportunity to check that patient's vital signs and examine them because the physical exam, me being able to do those physical exam maneuvers are ultimately going to change my clinical reasoning. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I guess, so the third sort of scenario I think about is preventive medicine and well child checks for young children, which I also do. 
Often what I'll do is the entire visit virtually, but then still have to bring a patient into the lab at a separate time if they need vaccines or if they need blood work done or if they need any x-rays or anything like that. So in that way, it's not 100% purely virtual, but the piece with me um, can still be virtual. You have a very, it sounds like you have a very strong sense of advocacy and you're willing to stand up for minorities and the people that, you know, deserve to have the... um, environment, the access, and every single part of equity that is missing for them to have it as well. How do you think that um, going into family medicine has helped you now in terms of um, advocacy and in terms of being there for the patients you have and the patients you don't have, but they maybe see you somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, that's why I chose family medicine. You know, in our country, being healthy is not as simple as going to the doctor, exercising and eating right. If that were the case, everybody would be healthy, right? And unfortunately, good health has more to do with your standing in society, your socioeconomic status, and a lot of these things you don't have control over. Um, And so for me, you know, being a family physician not only allows me to care for people one-on-one, but to also really have influence outside the confines of an exam room, right? So I have been to Capitol Hill to advocate for patients um, um, with legislators. I do try to get with the media as much as I can to provide logical, sound advice because like it or not, mainstream media is where a lot of people are getting their information, especially Mm. people who don't have a primary care physician. So any opportunity I have to educate patients, whether that's in the office or elsewhere, and really advocate for those who need it the most. I'm all about that. Hence, hence she's on Health in Harlem. Now, one thing I can tell you, um, Dr. Miesi Smallcheck, is that after this, you're probably going to get a flood of a bunch of emails and stuff, people trying to choose you as their uh, primary care provider, uh, I know, which I is would. awesome. I know, for real, for real, man. <laughs> uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Right. We said we were not going to leave you hanging and we were going to give you what you needed to make the decisions that you need to make um, in order to get a doctor like um, Dr. Miesi's Malchuk. And so um, what that boils down to is, number one, deciding what you are looking for. We kind of delved into that. A good first step is really just to look at the qualities that matter to you. And you're going to ask yourself those questions. Right. Do you prefer a man or a woman? Is it important for your doctor to have off-peak hours, right? Are they working uh, on the weekends so that you can see them if you can't make it during the work week? Do they have evening hours? Are they associated with a particular hospital or healthcare system that is ideal for you? Are they in network with your insurance, right? These are questions um, to ask. And if they're not in network, do they have a way of being affordable because that is the doc for you? Next, you're going to make a list of several possible providers, and then you're just going to start doing some detective work. Um, so asking around uh, friends or family that go to that individual or if you know coworkers, um, and then asking them particular questions. What do they like about that individual? What makes them keep going to that person? Um, how are their uh, uh, clinics or office hours structured? Things that will really just make sure that this is uh, a good fit for you. Next. You can gather information from the web. And we are very fortunate to live in this time because a lot of that detective work has become much easier as far as getting uh, information about your providers. And um, the American Medical Association has a doctor finder website that can be very useful. 
And we'll definitely be incorporating that into our uh, show notes. There's also the American Board of Medical Specialties Certification Matters Database. So that's something else you can check out. Um, the NIH also has a comprehensive list of directories um, that are all easily uh, findable and searchable online. And Medicare.gov, they have a physician compare tool that you can use uh, to, to actually look at the qualifications, the training of a, a physician. I would also recommend uh, just checking the state medical board, which this is publicly accessed information about any complaints or um, actions that have been taken against a physician. That stuff is all out there um, for you to to learn and know uh, before you select the provider. And then after that, essentially, it is about choosing that doctor. And as Dr. Miesi's uh, Mulchuk pointed out, this is more like dating as opposed to a hard set marriage. I mean, we want it to be, you know, at, at that marriage quality level. That would be awesome. Uh, but it's easy to get a divorce. <laughs> Put it <Yeah>. that way. <laughs> if something is not have, working out. Yeah, man. Lucky just, you find your soulmate. Otherwise, you keep searching. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and so and and one thing, too, to also get out there. I think there's uh, this this thought that, man, I don't want to leave this person. You know, they're uh, maybe they're very nice and they're actually, you know, pretty good at listening to you and. And you feel comfortable with that injury, but there's something that is that's not working for you. Um, and sometimes I think we think that we're going to hurt the physician's feelings or that they're going to feel a certain way. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we are professionals and we can we can take that <laughs> that loss. Um, and, you know, you might it might hurt a, a physician's uh, feelings. It might indeed hurt their feelings, which would be an awesome sign. Right. Because this person truly cares but at the same time, they are professionals and they will move on and they understand, especially if you give good reasoning, you know, reasoning as to why, but you don't have to give reasoning, but um, well, at the end of the day, don't be afraid to leave. Find the doctor that's right for you. And if that's exactly. not me, that's A-okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not that, um, that was a problem like my family had once is like we were so well connected with this doctor, but there was something off and it was very difficult to leave because of that connection that we did have like on a somewhat personal level. Mm. So it, it just made leaving that much harder. So that is a very, very good point that you brought up. Yeah. I had yeah. to learn, like they can take it. I know I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sad if someone left whatever service I was giving for someone that suited them better because you know, that's, it's a profession, it's a job so they can take, it. that's what I had and to tell myself. <laughs> And we want you to get the ideal care, right? Uh, if there's a, a something that somebody else is doing that is going to lead to a better outcome for you, um, even if that outcome is just you feeling more comfortable with that individual, then then so be it. I think that's the best thing. Um, and in this case, you really do have to think about yourself first. Um, and so as we wrap up, um, Dr. Miesis Malchuk, any what would you say is the most important thing um, in making this search and, and finding the right primary care provider? What is the most important thing that, that uh, our listeners should take home? I think the most important thing that people have to remember is, you know, all the research in the world on any one particular person doesn't mean you guys are going to click. And at the end of the day, you have to like the person who is helping to take care of you, whatever that means, whatever's going to make that person likable to you, you have to trust them and you have to believe that they're competent and that they have your best interests in mind. So at some point, I encourage everybody to just take the plunge, set up an appointment, see, see what that feels like. 
And I think it also needs to be said now more than ever before in the setting of COVID, you know, if you at all are nervous about accessing healthcare in person, call, ask questions, ask the physician or the office what they're doing to help keep you safe. COVID-19 should not be a reason why you don't establish care with a primary care physician and get the healthcare maintenance services that you need. Yes. Excellent. I want to thank you so much, so much for joining us. And thank you on, on behalf of our listening audience. And um, I mean, you're a veteran of the program, so you know you're welcome to come back anytime because <laughs> I know this is not, you definitely have much more to say. And ladies I and gentlemen, it was so dope. She, yeah, she said, she was like, <laughs> I got as much time as you guys need. I was like, wow. So our listeners definitely appreciate it. Of course, you know, myself, Giorgio and Anastasia, we definitely appreciate it. And um, yeah, uh, no goodbyes in all of this. So no, we'll thank you again. for having me. Thank <laughs> you for having me. Feel free to invite me back anytime. <laughs> all right. That's what's up. We'll be taking you up on that offer. Thank you. Yes. I'm totally down. Totally down. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we want to thank you for tuning in both on WHCR and both on the podcast uh, of course. And also, I want to thank my colleagues, Giorgio Malou and Anastasia Data. You guys are the best. And yeah, we got the best team, man, bringing you some good information on health in Harlem. Also, we want to shout out Reed. We want to shout out Ashley Francis, Michael Holmes. Uh, we want to shout out Alec, Zach. We got a big team. And um, yeah, did we? Yes. Oh, my goodness, man. Um, and that's it, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Health in Harlem. This show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.